electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Happy Thursday. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm John Fort with Deidre Bosa. Uh, Carl's got the day off. Investors fed up with poor returns. Inflation runs hot. Why the new bond king, Jeffrey Gunlock, says the Nasdaq is not the place to be, at least not long term. Plus, PagerDuty surging on results, having its best day in more than a year after some of its worst. The CEO joins us later this hour. And then Netflix doing everyone a favor, helping you break things off with your ex for good. We will talk paying up for content from the Amazon MGM deal to Netflix password sharing. We're going to start with tech stocks and the impact of the Fed decision. It has been a mixed session. Stocks are about flat right now. But the larger story here, John, is that massive rally that we have seen over the last few days in tech. The Nasdaq, it closed up 4% yesterday. Growth did even better. Snowflake closed up 16%. Bumble and Roku closed up 13% each. ARK's main fund was up 11 If you go back to December of 2018, the last time that the Fed hiked rates, the Nasdaq recorded four straight down days after that, shedding 9% in value. Not the story this time around. Although, of course, uh, John, we have seen a huge drawdown over the last few months. Investors are asking today, was that the bottom, especially in parts of the market that have been hit the hardest? Unfortunately, though, we have seen the Nasdaq fall deeper into negative territory, underperforming once again. And when we talk about, I know we're going to talk to Jen Tejeda later of Pager duty. That stock's surging today, but you got to look at how much it's down from its peak, right? right? And so if this is the bottom, if we're going to see the bottom, the question is, where then devaluation settle? Do they ever reach those peaks that we saw yeah, in the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, good morning for, for Jen Tejada's company. You know, it's back at the levels where it was exactly. a week and a half ago. Uh, but, but same thing goes for the NASDAQ in a way. It's like, yes, we talk about this big bounce, but we're still just below the levels where we started March, right about the levels where we were uh, to end March a year ago. So, you know, is that really enough? to call a bottom here, or is it just a signal to the market that the go-go days of, of the buy everything are over, and now you've got to be selective? Though, I mean, y- you look at uh, what we're seeing in PagerDuty, you think about what we saw from MongoDB, we were talking yeah. to David Idicharia just a few days ago, there is a sense that there is some fundamental value in these growth mm-hmm. stocks. We, we were hearing from some hedge fund managers months ago, oh, don't buy anything, right, that's not growing profits right now. Don't buy any growth stocks. I, I don't I don't know that you can do that in this market, but you certainly yeah. can be uh, selective. Yeah, I also think about, and I, I bring them up often, as Twilio and Datadog, another company mm. like PagerDuty with fantastic set of results, still down over the last month or so. Some are just down worse than others. And so there's this whole valuation re-rating that's happening right now. And we asked this yesterday, John, which is an Amazon, which is a Cisco. Sure, you're going to have some companies surpass the levels that we saw in the pandemic, but there may be a lot of them that don't, they still exist here. So now they're still very important, good companies, but may never reach those levels. Right. And if you were buying Cisco at those crazy levels in 2000, <laughs> 
What should you expect exactly? Still well, down. yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, let's stick with valuations for today's feed. Bond King Jeffrey Gunlock warning investors yesterday to steer clear of the Nasdaq uh, in the long term on closing bell overtime. Have a listen. I think that the Nasdaq is uh, not the place to be for the short term. Yes, because it's oversold. But if you're truly an investor, I'm not talking about between now and May here. I'm talking about looking forward to 2023 and beyond, I think you want to uh, want to avoid these greatly overvalued momentum stocks. And I also think that the investors should potentially think about investing in emerging market equity gradualistically. It's volatile as all get out. But I think I, I think ultimately it's going to be a strong performer for a multi-year horizon and it's cheap. Well, let's see what our next guest thinks about that. Joining us now, former Twitter CEO, now investor, Dick Costolo. Uh, Dick, good morning. So, uh, long-term NASDAQ, I mean the NASDAQ, that's a lot of stocks in the NASDAQ, but, you know, growth tech, the place to be or not? I mean, I both agree and disagree with Jeffrey. I agree with him that um, investing in overvalued momentum stocks is generally not a good idea. Um, and, you know, you've seen the results of that uh, uh, over the last couple months. But I, I completely disagree with him about the uh, investing in the Nasdaq over the long term growth and tech growth specifically and tech innovation in the United States and elsewhere uh, just continues to transform entire industries. And it will continue to do that. We're seeing early stage tech companies that will be public companies in four or five years that will be some of the greatest companies of the you know next next 20 30 years so i just disagree that you can you know you should you should ignore or stay away from the nasdaq generally in the long term because there might be inflation that needs to be you know uh, taken care of in, in the next couple of years so i'm a big fan of on tech check when we try to get into exactly what themes, what technology ideas are going to yield uh, the most important kind of innovation and growth over the long term? So what, what do you think that is? And more specific than just, okay, AI or, or cloud, which yeah. I think has ceased to have much meaning, what are the meaningful uh, needle movers when it comes to innovation in enterprise tech, maybe even in consumer uh, over the next three to five years? Yeah, uh, we could we could talk about this for for a while, but I'll try to uh, keep it simple and just do a couple uh, payments uh, automation in the financial to what's referred to as the fintech space um, just continues to explode, and there are numerous opportunities there. There are the consumer facing um, payments platforms and point of sale platforms like Toast, uh, now a public company, and Spot On, which we're investors in, a private company, and there are a number of those. And then there are companies that are automating the accounts payable. Uh, entire accounts payable systems for companies. Uh, Topalti um, uh, is one out, out of Israel. Um, there are a number of those. And as we saw with companies that are now public, like, like Adyen, for example, in Europe, these payments platforms can just expand and expand and expand almost, almost infinitely. The total addressable market for them is huge. So I think there will be a lot of uh, fintech companies coming to market on the payment space that are going to be great opportunities to make money Dick, on these public companies when they come out. It's your job. Just I want to question you there because we have seen so many fintech companies come public, arise. Yep. And I mean, they all want to do the same thing, be this one stop shop for, you know, a younger consumer. Can they all do that? It feels especially in this market environment, the investors are becoming increasingly skeptical of that. You're going to have to choose some winners, right? 
Yeah, well, I would I would distinguish what I just talked about from some of the um, buy now, pay later platforms. There are lots of buy now, pay later platforms, and we'll see how successful those are over time and and what their margins will look like. I do think in the payment space specifically, automating payments platforms for company companies, there are loads of opportunities, and you've got you've got companies like Bill.com that address the the SM you know small market players. You've got Topalti, which takes care of the mid market. And then you've got folks like Coupa and others. There are just plenty of opportunities for all these platforms. Dick, I was trying to think, um, I was listening to Jeffrey Gunlack and trying to think about what Kathy Woods might say in response. And I imagined yeah. her saying something like he's shorting American innovation. What's so yeah. interesting, he says, don't buy the NASDAQ, buy emerging markets. Do you think that he's maybe reading that as emerging markets like China chipping away at U.S. tech dominance? I... I, I don't it's hard to it's hard to say what he's what what he's I think he was first of all, I think he was mostly talking about um, over the course of the previous year, those overvalued momentum plays where things are trading at, you know, a 50 times next 12 months revenue, which is which is silly. Um, so I, I, I think Kathy's response to, to him and mine are probably the same. You don't want to be short American innovation and American tech innovation over the course of the next four to five years. Some of these very early stage companies are doing amazing things. Then they're going to be the next great American public companies. Yeah, but you, you could do very well shorting American innovation during hype cycles, though. The names that people yeah, get agreed. excited about, right, that maybe don't have uh, the full business model uh, behind them. And so that's why uh, I like this idea of getting beyond the easy themes and some of the things that you were talking about. FinTech isn't just buy now, pay later. It's not just consumer payments apps. It's your bill.coms, your Avalara's, you know, uh, et cetera. How much work is there to be done in small, medium business, both payments and even back office, right? That, that enterprise stuff that makes some people's eyes glaze over, but during periods, right, when the consumer hype cycle dies down, they make a lot of money. The back office platforms for both payments, uh, enterprise payments, and uh, platforms for developer tools, um, uh, better pro software project management tools, the, the next generation project management tools. Those things, like you said, they make people's eyes glaze over, but the, the products themselves are so much more beautiful and compelling than the existing offerings out there. And the existing offerings out there are parts of 70, $80 billion companies. So there's an incredible amount of innovation happening in that space. As I say, those co these companies will be public companies in the next five years, and they're going to be worth a lot of money. Certainly there's a lot of innovation, Dick, but we're also seeing dollars dry up, both in the private markets and huge sell-offs in some of the biggest public names. And I asked this question to Keith Ravoy last week. You're seeing a lot more dollars, at least in the private space, go into crypto and Web3. I wonder, what do you make of these dedicated crypto funds and all of the money going into this space? It's a lot. It's, uh, I, don't, I don't really know what to make of it. What I will say about late stage um, growth VC and maybe even early stage growth venture is the time to be concerned about it was last year when, again, valuations were as high as 100 times forward looking 12 months revenue. It's crazy to invest at those prices. So I, I find it sort of odd that people are now saying, you know, who are buying high to say don't come in when the prices have dropped. I mean, valuations are now as low as 4x revenue uh, because uh, you, people are looking at the public comps and saying, look, these are four to five times revenue valuations now. Uh, so uh, I'm a big, I'm a big, still a big fan of the buy low uh, uh, venture investing. And it's, it's surprising to see people who are pushing a lot of money into growth 
last year leaving now. Huh. Dick, I was talking to somebody last night, very smart, who said we're going to have to see some startups uh, come public at valuations that are less than their last rounds, kind of taking that pain uh, to, to get probably a revaluing in the private markets, which have still remained hotter than the public market has. And might that also be healthy for the public market if and when that happens? A hundred percent. But 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 keep uh, what I would what I would add to the challenge for uh, leaders of companies that are going to be taking uh, uh, fine, new financings, probably some public and some private at valuations lower than they than they raised 12 months ago. You've also got employees then who are, whose options are completely underwater, who can now, you know, they, they look at their equity and maybe they thought of it as, a, uh, you know, being a, of a certain value. And now it's le- less than zero. So there are a number of challenges that companies who raise money at enormous value valuations last year are going to have to find themselves dealing with over, over the course of the next 18 months. Yeah, they'll just revalue that equity, right? That's what they're right. doing. Just, they'll, you know, they'll have reprice. to reprice the options, just but then they've got to take a charge against that and yeah. all sorts. <laughs> yeah, right. But it's, it's being treated oftentimes like just free money. Dick, thank you. Yeah. I don't know if That's everyone's... Right. Thank you. Employees won't like that, no. uh, but uh, you're employ- have to employees will love it, it if, they, if they get repriced uh, when the, when it goes down. Absolutely. The CEOs of Unity Software and PagerDuty are coming up. Tech Check is just getting started. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Time for a gut check. Challenges ahead for Apple in China. The tech giant is still reaping the benefits from U.S. sanctions on competitor Huawei and strong recent upgrade cycles, but Bernstein's concerned that that could slow. Apple saw double-digit declines in China revenue following strong upgrade cycles in 2016 and 2019. Bernstein says if history repeats itself, Apple might be bracing for a hit and, of course, honor the budget brand that Huawei spun out in 2020, repositioning itself in the premium market. They say that also poses a threat. D. On the other hand, <laughs> there we go. Do we have the graphic ready? <laughs> have we seen 
those Mac numbers, could we be experiencing the beginning of a Mac super cycle and the dollars and margin dollars behind that significant? Uh, so I, I don't know. You got the, the Mac and the iPad with the M chips mm-hmm. inside. Uh, those are powerful. Those are selling well. It's not like you end a super cycle with just a down cycle necessarily, right. a slow cycle. It might just be a regular strong cycle of iPhones, and that's not bad. I yeah, know, and, and you've always been a big believer in the M1 chip. You got me over to your side. I know we talk about it now even <laughs> off air, you know, probably way too often. But that does sort of open up the possibilities. And the idea of vertical integration has so much room around the margins for Apple to do some interesting things that maybe aren't being looked at right now. Well, a- Apple is executing on so many of the things that Steve Jobs dreamed about, right. you know, a couple decades ago and couldn't pull off at the time. This extra step in vertical integration of being able to design and own the chip and bond that to the software the hardware, and the service, that's actually playing out for Apple, and that has implications beyond the Mac across the whole product line, right. including, you know, do we see an AR, VR headset? These power savings and, and uh, ability to do stuff at low power plays into that, of course. And that may require sort of a longer lens, right? It's a little bit more patient, so we'll see how we'll it see. works out. Uh, Meantime, ready, set, play growth in the gaming industry showing no signs of stopping. Coming off a year of soaring revenues, Unity Software, a major platform, is out with its new 2022 gaming report. The company is surveying over 230,000 developers who make and operate over 750,000 games. Joining us now, Unity Software CEO John Riccatello, also the former CEO of EA. John, it's great to have you this morning. Part of that report, some big numbers in there showed that games made with Unity software grew some 93 percent in 2021. I guess the question that investors, the markets are trying to figure out is, is that sustainable? Where do we go from here? Well, I mean, I think sustainability is always a little hard to measure. But one of the things I'd say is that if you look at, say, say pre-COVID to post, a lot of companies get sort of tarred with the notion that there was a COVID bubble. the the market's actually grown a lot in terms of players or users. So in gaming, from 2019 to 2021, sort of through that cycle, um, we've seen 62% increase in the number of people playing games on PC and console every day and 74% increase in mobile. And of course, I, I get to see you know daily reports or weekly reports, and that appears to be sustaining. So my sense is, you know, with entertainment, a lot of times people form new habits and they keep them. And people have come into gaming. It's the only medium I'm aware of with nearly 4 billion uh, people participating. And um, it seems to be holding up and continuing to grow. John, let me ask you a broad question. Obviously, we've seen a lot of consolidation in the gaming sector and some think that's going to continue. Is that a good thing for creators? Well, look, I think gaming is, is actually kind of unique. I, you know, Deirdre, I think it's kind of amusing. For 20 years now, I've been asked about consolidation in the game industry. And so it keeps happening, and it, it's like a roll-forward, never-stopping story. On the other hand, you know, there's companies that didn't exist a decade ago that are massive companies in the gaming industry today. It's, it's a market where innovation drives so much in the way of growth. And so, yeah, yeah, big companies buy more big companies. And then, you know, you know, the grassroots of this where, where Unity has actually got a lot of strength. We support these new startup developers. We love these creators. And a lot of them end up at the top of the charts. There's really lower barriers to entry for startups, which is one of the reasons, you know, by way of example, we've seen 31% new creators on the Unity platform, 21, 21 over 2020. People coming into the space, uh, bringing their innovation, bringing their ideas. John, uh, I get queasy whenever there's too much talk uh, in the gaming industry about going beyond gaming because there seems to be so much good business in just 
making good games, making deep games that people love to play. So I'm thinking about back, you know, 20 years ago when people were talking about these consoles that were going to run the whole living room. That didn't exactly happen. Consoles are still about playing games for the most part. Um, Where do you see uh, the, the opportunities in gaming itself? I think some of this metaverse talk, though I know, you know, you're enabling lots of different things beyond gaming as well, is getting ahead of its skis in that space, too. It's going to be great for games, uh, uh, certainly. Where do you see um, perhaps some of the gaming industry conversation going too far beyond games, if you do see that? And where do you see the most development opportunity with, with the tools that you're providing? So first off, um, I've been in the gaming industry for coming on to three decades now. It's a, I love this space. I love the creator. We put an enormous amount of focus on it, and it's growing really rapidly. Um, and so I see really no end in sight for growth in this space and um, opportunities for new and established companies in the space. Having said that, there is something to this metaverse thing. And so I think industries, you know, architecture, engineering, construction, the auto industry, et cetera, they want a piece of what's going on, that increased engagement, you know, from real time or 3D applications. You know, last year alone, 1,052 new companies came to Unity to build applications, again, in architecture, engineering, construction, auto, lots of other industries, you know, wanting to engage their users more, more fully. Um, and they are. And so that other industries are learning or following in the footsteps of gaming isn't a big surprise. Um, it's enabled by, you know, great companies like NVIDIA and Microsoft and Facebook or I guess Meta. Lots of companies are supporting that. I do think it's part of the future. Um, but for, for Unity, our heart and soul is in gaming. Um, you know, like you, um, I think sometimes people get ahead of their skis, you know, with some of the commentary. But, you know, having said that, think of us as, you know, central around gaming and pushing the, the companies to help them succeed, both in the creation and the operation of their games. But, you know, we don't push back, you know, industries that are coming our way and, and looking for opportunity to engage, sell, do something better. When you see these new companies coming in, you say the barriers to entry are lower for for innovation in gaming. What are the areas that they're pushing on? Are they able to create deep worlds more quickly than in the past and do that with fewer people? Are they able to work remotely, perhaps, and uh, and engage temporary teams in a way to get things done uh, that wasn't done in the past? What what are the newer entrants doing that's innovative, even in the structure of how they work? Look, um, some of it is pretty simple, John. So it's as simple as getting a true 3D uh, rotatable image of a luxury good or a fashion item. I mean, if you go to retail these days and, and you look at the high end, so much of what they make isn't in the store. You need to buy it online or source it online. And what they're finding is when a consumer or, or, or future buyer can see and almost touch it by looking at it in 3D, those tools are actually the same tools um, as the gaming industry has been using with Unity for the better part of a, a decade plus. So what they're really finding is, is they can take pieces of what the game industry has been doing ever so well, apply it to their business, whether it's retail or luxury goods. Or, um, look, in, in years past, if you were proposing you know, to a, a, a sports owner uh, a stadium, and you could show them pictures and blueprints, and, but what you can do when you bring that into Unity, into, into real-time 3D, they can show the stadium with the team on the floor, the 
the stadium filled with, with, with an audience, light coming through the window as it is the playoffs. And it's exactly the light for that time of day and that time of year. And you can see where the crowds are around the concessions. And, you know, frankly, that's the future. People see that and they want to buy that more than a flat blueprint. And so people are using these technologies to enable their business to succeed more. So I don't see that abating. Um, personally, I find some of the metaverse talk a little silly. But, <laughs> um, but putting aside that, which is silly, there's really important things here. Uh, yeah. Next time I have to get around to remodeling your kitchen, <laughs> let me show you what it looks like in Unity, and you're going to better understand what you're doing. That's a nuanced take. We like it. I could see John in person smiling at that. Uh, John Fort, that is. John, last question to you. I know a lot of American, a lot of Western companies are grappling with what to do with their business in Russia amid the Ukraine conflict. I know that you guys are banning some users, but not everyone. Could you give us some color on how you arrived at that? So, look, I mean, first off, you know, my heart bleeds for what's going on in, in, in Ukraine. And, you know, it, it, it's something that is felt by everyone at Unity. And the first thing I tell you we did is we did a huge program around our assets tour to support Ukrainian developers. Second thing we did, I've never seen this before. It never happens. Half the people at Unity, um, you know, myself included, you know, have donated to support uh, um, U- Ukraine in a huge number of ways. Um, of course, we followed all the sanctions. You know, we cut off everybody that had anything to do with the government, et cetera. But, you know, there are some students and, and sort of, you know, young people that we, we, we looked at that and said, um, you know, step by step, we don't want to be sort of a judge, jury, and executioner. A um, couple of them that we turned off by way of example, we found out they'd already left the country. And so we just have to be a little bit careful. But we are steadfast in our support of the sanctions, the the, the fact that, you know, what's happening is wrong and we want to support, uh, support Ukraine in every way we can. John Riccatello, thank you so much for being with us. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for having me. Now, after the break, pager duty surging on results up about 16.5% at the moment. Do investors once again feel safe putting money into growth? We will discuss with CEO Jennifer Tejada. That's after a quick break. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... 3 a.m. The office was shocked. That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Bozo with John Fort and Julia Borston. Netflix trying to make some extra revenue off password sharing, experimenting with price hikes in select markets. Julia has that story in just a minute. First, let's get a news update with Rahel Solomon. Rahel. Hi, Deirdre. Good morning. And here's what's happening at this hour. U.S. crude prices jumping 7% and breaking back above $100 per barrel. The International Energy Agency 
says that 3 million barrels per day of Russian oil production could be cut off starting next month. That is far more than the 1 million barrel a day demand drop expected due to higher fuel prices. Housing starts jumped more than expected in February and hit a 16-year high, this despite higher interest rates and building costs. Meanwhile, Zillow reports that the value of the typical U.S. home rose 20 percent. That's more than $52,000 last year and thousands of dollars more than the median pay for full-time workers. And speaking of workers, jobless claims dropped to 214,000 in the latest week. That is the lowest since the beginning of the year, but continuing claims sank even more, falling to their lowest level in 52 years. And shares of Dollar General are up about 3% after surging as much as 6% before the bell. Quarterly results were roughly in line, but the retailer gave strong full-year guidance, also raised its dividend by 31%. John, I'll send it back to you. Rahel, thank you. And now we've uh, discussed the massive piles of cash that some tech companies have been stockpiling. So how does the Fed's plan to hike rates, rates impact what they're going to do with that? Steve Kovac is with us to discuss. Steve, I mean, inflation, but... A lot of stocks are cheaper. That's true. And that's the kind of thing these big tech companies are going to be looking at. We know Apple has over $200 billion, tens of billions of dollars between the other big cap stocks that we always talk about. And the thing is, a lot of these companies, if this continues and if this environment, could, we see these growthier stocks continue to fall, they're going to become tasty acquisition targets for these big guys whose cash piles are not only going to grow because they're the free cash flow they have, but because the interest rates keep growing up. Regulation has, of course, always been a question overhanging, but we're seeing these big tech companies make acquisitions outside of their core, so it's easier to get through. Amazon just closed today. Exactly. So that could perhaps provide some impetus. You've still got Google, Mandiant, you've got Microsoft, Activision, Blizzard, but the fact that they're not going into their core businesses is sort of, I wonder if that's going to be a way around of it. Yeah, and you you also got to look right what's hot right now. Mandiant could just be the beginning of this, uh, the cybersecurity acquisition thing that we were starting to see especially with what's going on in Ukraine and Russia and all the concerns around that. And just the spend companies are going to be doing on cybersecurity. That makes those big acquisition targets. And again, if you believe a recession is coming right now, th- these are not the, the stocks to get into. You're, you're, you, they're scary. You, you want, want profits. It, you want profits. <laughs> you want to see that top line growth. And uh, the growth stocks don't do that. Yeah, Steve, there's another way that big tech companies use cash sometimes, uh, particularly over the past decade or so, that I find fascinating, using cash to their advantage strategically. And that's in uh, even helping smaller companies stand up production, right, in special uh, types of materials uh, or technology. So like Apple working with Corning on right. stronger glass, uh, you know, experimenting with sapphire, you know, crystal. I I wonder if there are going to be opportunities there that investors might not see on the surface. It might not be flat out M&A, but it's companies with capital, right, at a time when uh, it's getting more expensive to borrow who are able to say, hey, you know, I'm going to get the first that rolls off that assembly line, but I'll help you finance the assembly line. Exactly. And especially as we keep seeing companies like Intel try to diversify where their supply chains are at. That makes an opportunity to put that investment in the United States, in Europe, and outside of Asia, where it typically is. Absolutely. And Google, with its cloud customers, don't forget that, too, using some of that cash pile to (laughs) drum up business. Absolutely. Uh, It's a favorite use, always. Steve, thank you. Thanks, John. Turning to the cloud, PagerDuty seeing a big boost after reporting better-than-expected guidance for the upcoming quarter and full year. You pull out longer term, the stock's still struggling along with the rest 
of software, down double digits year to date. But joining us now on the future of the company and the DevOps space, PagerDuty CEO, Jen Tejada. Um, Jen, good to see you. So the, the growth that you saw in the whole fiscal year in the last quarter um, continues to be pretty strong. How would you characterize the way customer demand has changed over these last few months of the pandemic? Well, John, thank you again for having me. It's great to see you all. Uh, Look, we posted a really strong quarter and strong full year with 32% growth across the board. Um, We saw strength with our enterprise customers. Our customers spending over 100K grew 39%, and our customers spending over a million dollars in ARR grew 65%. And frankly, over the last several weeks and months, we haven't seen a change in what I would call a strong buying signal. You know, we, our business is growing on the back of long-term tailwinds that I don't think are going away. Uh, Cloud adoption, digital transformation, DevOps acceleration, and increasingly, we see inflation as a potential tailwind. As as costs rise, as talent is harder to come by, the appetite for automation, which is a big part of our platform, is increasing. Um, Yeah, and you've done some acquisition there, too. So looking at your guidance, uh, you you guided in the first... quarter of fiscal 2023 to 28 to 31 percent growth, which, you know, given that uh, oftentimes companies are conservative right along the lines of of what you've been doing, that that indicates your confidence. But I also wonder how much are you keeping your options open for M&A in this environment as, um, you know, for some smaller companies that are maybe doing automation, they might want to buddy up to somebody like PagerDuty. Sure, we just we just made an acquisition of Catalytic, which is a company in Chicago that makes uh, smart workflows, no-code workflows for workers across the enterprise. And we saw Catalytic as a strategic product fit where we are starting to see new use cases from our customers in areas like finance or marketing or sales. And these are not technical users like our developers. They're looking for a more intuitive, flexible workflow solution. But the common thread across the board is that All of us as human beings and employees are seeing more unstructured, unpredictable, time-critical work coming our way. And traditional ticketing solutions and solutions in the past just don't help us deal with that type of work. And so Catalytic is, I think, a a great opportunity for both us and them to come together to really uh, leverage the access to those new use cases and continue to um, uh, address more of our serviceable market. And as a Midwesterner, I'm thrilled to welcome (laughs) Ravi and Sean and the team from Chicago to PagerDuty. Hey, Jennifer, it's Deirdre. It's great to see you. Uh, I know that you're tight with other CEOs in the enterprise software space, particularly in San Francisco. Their stocks have been crushed along with yours, Okta, Box, Zoom. Do you guys talk about employee morale and how to handle a workforce that has seen, you know, a substantial part of their pay equity decline in value over the last few months? You know, the way we all think about this is we're playing the long game. No one's in this quarter to quarter. I mean, most of us have been with our businesses for 5, 10, 15 years. And PagerDuty is very culture first. And I think culture becomes a competitive advantage for us at a time like this. What we do is mission critical for our customers, even in inflationary times or when the labor market is tighter. And our employees, are we call them Dutonians, are driven by our purpose. Uh, they come to work to be surrounded by 
you know, brilliant people who actually mm-hmm. care about customer outcomes. And I think that trumps, you know, a lot of these other issues. Uh, and at the same time, you know, PagerDuty continues to look for ways to be an attractive employer, yeah. a long-term employer, as it relates to career growth and flexibility and, you know, a lot of the other benefits we've talked about in the past. Right. And certainly as CEOs, you guys are able to look long-term, but I wonder your employees are doing so also. Uh, how does that affect sort of your return to work plans and some of the perks that maybe you have traditionally or not traditionally offered to employees? Well, we've always been a distributed company. We have a distributed by design sort of focus from a workforce perspective. And, you know, we've tried to focus our benefits and our perks around uh, helping people balance their lives and their work effectively, whether that's been supporting parents or supporting people that are taking care of their aging parents. Um, And as we come back together for work, and frankly, our office has been open for quite some time, we're really focused on our teams coming back together to collaborate, to, uh, you know, really build those relationships those human connections again. And, you know, I, for one, have been getting out and traveling. I was with my team and my board all week last week. And I think what you find is as you reestablish those connections, the culture, the cultural fabric becomes stronger. So I feel I feel good about the balance that we're striking from a hybrid work perspective. John, I want to ask about that catalytic acquisition that you mentioned announced a couple weeks ago and uh, try to figure out how you fit that and things like that into your portfolio in your sales motion. Is that something that you're adding on to what you're already offering or are you more looking to pick up a new customer category with it? Catalytic is really about accelerating our roadmap and some of the product strategy we already had underway. So bringing more flexibility to our workflows, uh, bringing no code into workflow automation to, like I said, open up new use cases within our customer base uh, and to help us help us continue to to grow the business. Uh, but it really is more about a product, the strategic product acquisition side of things, as opposed to tacking on a new business, for instance. Got it. All right, Jennifer Tejada, CEO of PagerDuty. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Coming up, will a Netflix price hike help boost the stock? That is next. Stay with us. Netflix is testing a new fee aimed at password sharing. Julia Borson has that story and how it relates to media companies paying up for content. Julia, I was just saying to John, I'm for this move if it gets my brothers off of my Netflix account, off my algorithm. Well, either you're going to be paying for him or he's going to be paying for himself pretty soon. And that is because Netflix is indeed cracking down on password sharing. It will prompt people who are sharing an account who aren't in the same household to pay a fee, to add an extra viewer, or to transfer to a new account. Now, they're testing this approach starting in Chile, Chile, Costa Rica, and Peru. Now, this is a reversal from back in 2016 when CEO Reed Hastings said that account sharing was fine, not a problem, but it does come after Netflix experimented with account verification last year. It comes just a couple of weeks after Netflix's latest price hike. 
Now, this, like the price hike, is designed to help fund new content. The company's director of product innovation, Cheng Yi Long, saying account sharing between households is, quote, impacting our ability to invest in great new TV and films for our members. Morgan Stanley writing this morning, quote, this move feeds into bare concerns that Netflix is facing saturation issues globally following three subscriber misses in a row. Entry into the video game space, slight tone change on advertising openness and rising competition from Disney plus HBO, etc. Now, Netflix's latest move to fuel more content comes as rival streamer Amazon Prime closes its deal to buy MGM for $8.5 billion to do the same thing. This deal gives it access to 4,000 films, including the James Bond and Rocky franchises, and also more than 17,000 hours of television content. Now, this comes as the FTC did not file a legal challenge before its mid-March deadline. Guys, many people were watching to see if Lena Khan was going to do that. Back over to you. Julia, I wonder if this means we can expect a massive, epic Rocky TV series set in New Zealand or something um, now, now, that, now that Amazon has this property. But really, on the password sharing, I think this is an interesting, very interesting development. Are, are they going to track IP addresses and frequency of login from a certain place? Like, how are they going to tell the difference? I think this is a Becky Quick question from earlier today between somebody who's off on vacation or spending time at a summer home, one, part of the, one member of the family perhaps, versus um, somebody else using the account. I think they are going to be doing all of the above. But what I think is so interesting, John, is that they can't do another price hike right now, right? They just rolled out a price hike. So what they're going to be doing instead is making sure that everyone pay for what they're watching. They, you know, if, if they have multiple people in the same house, if they have people who are renting an Airbnb wanting to log in to Netflix, they want to not frustrate those people by making it too challenging for them. But I do think there are various tools such as IP addresses. And I think the fact that they were working on account verification last year means they've been really building up to this for a while. Okay. We'll all eagerly await how uh, Netflix does that. Julia, thanks. And as we head to break, want to highlight a story on CNBC.com. CEO of Moderna sold $400 million worth of stock during the pandemic as shares boomed on the back of its successful vaccine. You can read more about that scoop at CNBC.com. Uh, up next here on Tech Check, a look at China stocks. The Hang Seng up another, let's see, 7%. We're back in two. We've talked about tech stocks down 70, 80 percent since last year. Names like Zoom and DocuSign. And now that's also hurting companies' ability to attract talent, retain employees. Kate Rooney has more on that story. Kate, we just spoke about this with Jennifer Tejada. She said that they're putting the emphasis on culture, and that's more important than ever. But, I mean, it comes down for many employees to what they're being paid, the money. Absolutely. Yeah, it can be distracting. And equity packages really aren't what they used to be. People who joined some of these high growth tech names in the last couple of years are underwater in a lot of cases when it comes to their stock and options. That's hurting morale. And uh, like you mentioned, they really need to switch the focus here. Recruiters and people I'm talking to say that it's distracting, it's demotivating and it's leading to attrition. So the backdrop here, compensation in Silicon Valley tends to be really equity heavy. So people often trade a higher salary for more exposure to a company's stock. That can be through options or RSUs, which are restricted stock units. And that may have worked out well in recent years. But tech is getting slammed in the face of rising rates. The Nasdaq and QQQ down double digits for the year. 
Tech companies with even deeper losses are looking at equity grants or cash perks to keep employees. Blind pulled some of this data for us. Robinhood, which is down about 70 percent in the last six months, is issuing new stock. You've got Chewy giving one-time RSU grants. Roku is down about 50 percent this year. That company giving employees new grants and cash-based raises. Snap and Uber are also adjusting comp to match new hire offers. Recruiters I'm talking to say employees who got options at the higher end really don't see a path to profitability right now with the market turning on high growth tech. And many are looking to move if they can and get new equity packages at a new company when the stock is lower. So there could eventually be more upside. A little bit of a buy the dip mentality there. There's also been a flight to some of the earlier stage companies. There's a longer runway before needing to go public. Health tech is one big bright spot. And despite a slump in crypto prices, guys, I'm told blockchain startups are paying some of the highest salaries for engineers and executives right now. Guys. I mean, I'm interested, Kate, in whether these companies are uniformly just repricing the options. Why not? Why not just like if you if they've gotten an offer from somebody else whose stock is also cheaper. Right. But um, but the the current stock price is what the compensation is based on. Are some of these companies saying, well, well, we'll just reprice you. Yeah. I mean, you've seen that and they've had to do that to compete with some of their their peers. You're even seeing it in the private markets where they're compared to some of their publicly traded peers. We're bound to see uh, a reprice and valuations there. You're seeing some trickle effects into private markets as well. But uh, even Amazon and the stock split, you're really seeing companies need to meet employees and uh, and just do new innovative things, including grants, but also in some cases stock splits. Yeah, um, that's that's where we get these non-GAAP results for exactly this kind of reason. Kate, thank you. Now, I know you would hate to miss any of Tech Check, folks, but just in case you did, you can listen to it, follow and subscribe to our podcast. Plus, check out shares of Vox, higher after the company raised guidance, announced $150 million buyback at its analyst day. Stock is now positive on the year and up 2.5% just about on the session so far. Tech Check, back in a moment. One more thing, Yuga Labs, the startup behind the Bored Apes Yacht Club, is backing a new cryptocurrency called ApeCoin that will, will be distributed by an independent DAO. For now, the coin will be used as an in-game currency for a new play-to-earn game similar to Axie Infinity. The DAO Council members include Reddit co-founder Alexis Ohanian and Amy Wu from FTX. Meanwhile, EU regulators are not as bullish on crypto, warning that, quote, consumers face the very real possibility of losing all of their invested money. If they buy these assets, uh, no kidding. But that's Deep. like many, many things. ApeCoin, though, maybe particularly relevant this morning. Why has Chuck E. Cheese not minted a crypto <laughs> token yet? Mouse coin, Chuck coin. I mean, they already have the, the coins, right? It, it just, why the not? retro Mi- aspect that meme investors would love. That's Missed a really good question. Yeah, use it in game in Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> yeah. um, it's been a pleasure to be here in person with you, John. I'm Great back to San Francisco you. tomorrow. Uh, Uh, So I'll see you from there. For now, the halftime report starts. Let's get to the judge. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. 
or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.